Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 310, Let's Talk About Bread. This week, we pick back up with our Mystery of Christ series and discover the deep mysteries of the Eucharist as Steve explores several church traditions surrounding communion. So let me start uh, with a couple of uh, quotes. The first one is John 6. 53 to 58, which will really be the foundation for, for most or a lot of what I want to say tonight. Jesus speaking, he said, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person up at the last day. For my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. I live because of the living Father who sent me. In the same way, anyone who feeds on me will live because of me. I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will not die. And the second passage I want to just keep us in mind is Luke's account of what's called the Last Supper. Then Jesus took some bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, saying, This is my body, which I am giving for you. Do this to remember me. And then he did the same with the cup after supper, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. That's Luke 22, 19 and 20. <coughs> Excuse me. What took place at the Last Supper and what we remember through whichever your tradition is most comfortable with, communion, the Lord's Supper, Eucharist, uh, whatever the term, what we remember through these is at the heart of the mystery of Christ. And so as I began this series months ago on the mystery of Christ, I knew tonight was coming, that we need to talk about it. And frankly, my hope, my prayer today has been that the Lord will help us to go deeper, that we, in one sense, we'll never take communion quite the same again. Um, so it's up to him to do that. But that is my, that's my hope. That's been my prayer. So tonight we're going to see how intrinsically the Eucharist is linked to the Incarnation. And our primary Incarnation verse all along has been John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. It is so clearly revealed in Jesus' words around the Last Supper, around the Eucharist. Over the past thousand years, a number of different interpretations of what Jesus instituted have been uh, developed. And so I thought I would have to start with something that's a little dry, a little informational, but I, I want to do an incredibly brief overview of, of five major traditions or points of view uh, within church traditions on the Eucharist. The first one, the Roman Catholic view, the Eucharist, by the way, it's just Greek, it means Thanksgiving. 
uh, is a sacrament, and like all sacraments, it conveys grace to all who receive it worthily. They believe the grace of God is imparted through uh, the Eucharist. Uh, on consecration, the bread and the wine change completely into the actual body and blood of Christ. This change is known as transubstantiation. And Christ's presence in the elements is called the real presence. That's taking pages and turning it into three sentences. <laughs> the second view, the Orthodox uh, or Eastern Orthodox view, and I'm quoting from their own statement of faith, we believe the Lord Jesus to be present, not typically or figuratively, nor by superabundant grace, um, but truly and really, so that after the consecration of the bread and the wine, the bread is transmuted, transubstantiated, converted, and transformed into the true body itself of the Lord. Very similar, here's the difference. The Catholic view is that it is in every possible way, the bread becomes flesh, the wine becomes blood, and, um, and the Orthodox view is yes, but it's a mystery. We don't know how. The Catholic's view is we do know how. It's through the consecration, the process of what the priest prays over it. The um, Orthodox also believe in consecrating the elements, but they say it is a mystery. Mm. So the, the two are, are not far apart, but there's a little difference there. The Lutheran view, remember Martin Luther? The Lutherans believe in the real presence of the body and the blood of Christ in the Eucharist, that the body and blood of Christ are truly and substantially present in and with and under the forms of the consecrated bread and wine, so that communicants, when they eat and drink the holy body and blood of Christ uh, himself, they are also eating true bread and wine. So the two are together, okay? Number four, the reform view. I hope you will all forgive me for going so quick on this, but I want to get to other things. The reform view. Many reform, particularly those following John Calvin, hold that the reality of Christ's body and blood do not come physically to the elements, but that the Spirit truly unites things that are separated in matter. Okay, so it's a spiritual union. The fifth position, which is for many of us in an evangelical slash Pentecostal or charismatic tradition, uh, uh, is this, that the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion, uh, they deny any form of physical or spiritual presence of Christ in the bread and the wine. Rather, the Lord's Supper is a remembrance of Christ's suffering and a reminder of his power to overcome sin and death. So, the four first views focus on when Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood. The fifth view, many independent churches, Baptists, etc., focus on the second thing that he said, do this in remembrance of me. So although the differences between especially the Roman Catholic Orthodox and Lutheran are subtle, uh, I believe 
And this has been a, a journey for me over the last few years. Uh, but I believe that uh, at the Eucharist, at communion, there is a great mystery that is taking place. <laughs> this has fascinated me. Um, you know, sometimes I go visit other churches in the city. Sometimes I preach. I, I did a, a weekend in an Anglican church uh, two, three months ago um, that was fairly high Anglican. So I get to see different examples. And I find it interesting to note that the Catholic, Orthodox, and Anglican traditions, um, in their services, the most important focus of the service, and indeed everything in the service leads up to, the Eucharist, not the sermon. The sermon is secondary. The Eucharist is the center of everything. Um, so that's just to really quickly go through five views. Now let's talk about, and we'll try to tie in a little bit, some of what I taught on last week. For those of you who are maybe have come online and were, were not with us last week, if you go on the Impact Nations Facebook page, you can just scroll back to seven days ago, and uh, I did a, a teaching, really second part teaching, on the Incarnation. But I want to build on that tonight, because the two overlap, as I was very aware when I was teaching on the Incarnation. So, last week, remember, I, I talked about the very breath that we breathe. Uh, uh, the breath of life, I talked about that as an incarnation reality. Incarnational reality. That every breath reminds me, as I said to you last week, you're in me and I'm in you. You're in me. And I'm in you. And this is my morning time. This was my time this morning, and I had a wonderful encounter. Just He just encountered me in the midst of that. So our very breath is a reminder of the incarnation of Christ in all of life. Tonight, we're going to turn that just slightly and say, in the same way, food is life. And it reflects the same incarnational reality as pneuma, or breath. Everybody tracking? Okay. So let's talk about bread for a little bit. As I often do when I teach you, I want to go back to what the historic church and uh, its, its early teachers believed. I did a lot of reading on the church fathers around this whole issue of the Eucharist. Um, for me, I, I, I take great story in what the church fathers and mothers say. Uh, the, because, you know, for example, I was reading uh, what Ignatius had to say about his own uh, pending martyrdom in terms of uh, the Eucharist and bread. And Ignatius, who was martyred in about 109, you know, he was the direct disciple of the Apostle John. Um, so these are people that I really listen to. So, the starting point for the church fathers was John 6, the passage I started with tonight. <clears throat> they continuously came back in their writings to the fact that Jesus is the bread of heaven. Jesus is the bread of life. It's amazing how often they turn to that. And that the risen one gives himself fully to us in the Eucharist. That's his giving to us every time. 
we partake. Uh, it is resurrection food. They said that Jesus is living bread because his body, and we're back to what I tried to open up in terms of incarnation last week, because his body is composed of the whole life of the cosmos needed together. The bread represents all of the cosmos needed together. And of course, as we said last week, the creator became creature. He is, he is incarnate in all of the cosmos. His life permeates all of the cosmos. And this, of course, includes the human race. Ignatius, I forgot I wrote that here. Ignatius, that same early church father, called the Eucharist the leaven of immortality. Certainly, it was not just a symbol or a token. <clears throat> it needs to be received in faith. This is really important. It needs to be received in faith. But its power is objective and independent of our attitude toward it. When Jesus says it is finished, when as I taught you last week and in past weeks, that he reconciled all things to himself. And I always get you to say, how many things? And you say, all things. It is a complete work, independent of our attitude toward it. How we feel about it doesn't change the reality. It does, however, affect our receiving the blessing and the life of that reality. That goes all the way back to the issue of free will. It's the same thing with the Eucharist. Frankly, if I come to it as I did for years as a reminder and thank you, Lord, for what you did, which is fine. That is, after all, part of what he said, do this in remembrance of me. But if I leave it at symbolic, then there's so much more life and mystery and power and presence. It's there, but I'm not receptive. I'm not receiving it. I'm oblivious to it. So it needs to be received. Our attitude toward the Eucharist can only restrict or encourage the spread of the Holy Spirit's fire, the Eucharistic fire that comes in the Eucharist. Does that make sense to you? Okay. Here's another church father. I'm going to give you a few this, this evening. Cyril said this, and all of this is about me talking about the bread of life that it's not symbolic. <clears throat> the church father Cyril said, Christ himself declared, speaking of the bread, this is my body. Who then will hesitate in future? And when he himself asserts categorically that this is my blood, who will doubt it and say that it is not his blood? That's fairly straightforward, isn't it? The bread reminds us and reflects the reality of John 14, 20. That I think I might have just prayed tonight. I know I mentioned it already. I'm in the Father, you're in me, I'm in you. It's a, it's a, it's a life verse for me. I got a few of them. <laughs> well, Gregory of Nyssa, one of the Cappadocian fathers, you probably don't care about that, but he's an amazing church father, amazing theologian. He said, since bread is absorbed by the body, it becomes the body itself, right? That makes sense? When I take in the bread, more than remembering Christ's sacrifice, I am receiving the bread of heaven, the very body 
of Christ into myself, and therefore I am in incarnational unity with him. This is deeper stuff than remembering, isn't it? The third point around, around the incarnation and the Eucharist. He says in verse 55 of John 6, my flesh is real food. I've been thinking about that the last couple of days. You know, I always joke uh, when I'm preaching, I often joke out of John 6 because he says, eat my flesh, drink my blood, and everybody runs away. And he turns to Peter and says, are you guys going to leave too? And he says, where else could we go? We're hooked. You've heard me say that. But if we go deeper beyond me just making a very surface thing, my flesh is real food. No wonder so many people ran away. They just couldn't take that in. It seems too intimate. It seems too personal. Um, even beyond the Jews' natural aversion to, to, to meat that the blood hadn't been drained from, uh, I think they shied away from this deeply personal statement. Notice he didn't say, this is my spirit given to you. We get that in John 20, but that's not what he says here. He says, this is my flesh. <coughs> in the Eucharist, Jesus is giving us his full humanity as well as his divinity. Like last week, like I told you in the Incarnation last week, by doing this, once again, he is declaring all human life is sacred. Do you hear that? All human life. The unborn and the born. The young, the old. The black, the brown, the white, the oriental. All human life is sacred. And also, like last week, this points to, the Eucharist points to the word I gave you, hypostasis, fully God, fully man. The bread is made up of two elements now. One is earthly, and one is heavenly. So when we partake of the Eucharist, we are stepping into like a parallel realm of the earthly, the natural, and the heavenly. Remember what he said to um, Nicodemus in John 3? He's talking to him and he says, Nicodemus, don't you get, if you can't, if you can't get the earthly things, how are you going to get the heavenly things? I believe that the Eucharist is among many other things. It's a ladder for me to the heavenly things. Every time I take it. So it is this hypostasis. So this statement, <clears throat> pardon me, this statement, my flesh is real food, emphasizes that Christ is physically present in the bread and the wine. And you know, eating the bread establishes that we are the body of Christ. I'm going to say a little more about that later. The body of Christ, we, many of us as evangelicals, it's turned to this kind of ethereal, oh, I'm in the body of Christ. But it's incredibly deep, incredibly deep. 
and the Eucharist itself, because of what, for example, what what we we saw uh, Gregory of Nyssa say that that the bread becomes our body. Christ becomes our body. Christ in me. I tell you, I'm not playing word games when I'm with the Lord in the mornings, as I breathe it again and again and again. You're in me and I'm in you. You're in me and I'm in you. It's not a mantra. It's not a word game. It's me getting in, frankly, I believe, internally into the rhythm of the cosmos because he is in the entire cosmos. I don't want to get too ethereal on you, but I tend to be a little that way sometimes. So that's the bread. Let's talk about the wine. And he did the same thing with the cup after supper, saying, this cup that is poured out for you uh, is the new covenant in my blood. He says, my blood is true drink. Now, as I alluded to five minutes ago, for Jews, the life is in the blood. We've all heard that, I think. So, of course, they just, at a, at a, at a human level, they just backed up. They couldn't take this. So, my blood is true drink. My life is in the blood, right? But secondly, isn't it interesting? Because for the Jews, covenants were always ratified by what? Bloodshed. Always. So, just like when he said, eat my flesh, it's an almost unseemingly intimate and personal invitation. It, it's so close. Maybe some of you have the same experience. Sometimes he says things to me that are so intimate. My response, my instinct, isn't to lean into it, but to pull back a little bit. I don't know if that makes sense to anybody in this room, but it does to me, so I'll stick with it. <laughs> I believe when he says, this is true drink, this is my blood, he's telling us to take in the most intimate expression of his life. Now, from the earliest days, the church fathers recognized there was something deeply identificational about this. And remember we talked about incarnation must be identificational last week, remember? I said that's why we must, for me, my conviction, I must identify with the broken and the hurting and the outcast and the alien and everyone because of the incarnation, not just because I think it's a good thing to do. Well, likewise, the fathers recognized something deeply identificational in what Jesus is saying. This is, this is bread. I am the bread of life. And this is true drink. You remember in uh, Matthew 23, 35, Jesus said, and he's kind of going after the religious people. And he says, and so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel, uh, Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Remember that verse? What did he do? He bookended in the Old Testament, the first bloodshed and the last bloodshed murder. 
So the first and last unrighteous shedding of blood. Remember, some of you will remember, I've taught you in the past on the Lord's Prayer, and, and when we pray that petition, give us this day our daily bread, I said that's intensely identificational. It's not, Lord, help me to make my car payment this month. It is the, my conviction, the Christ who cared enough about 5,000 hungry people cares about 2.3 billion hungry people. We are praying for the release of the kingdom of God for daily bread, okay? In the Eucharist, so we are uniting with the, the poor and the outcast and those suffering injustice. Well, in the Eucharist, we're uniting with the unjust suffering of the world. The blood of Christ takes me to the blood, not just of the martyrs, but to everyone who's been unjustly and is being unjustly killed. Because Christ is fully incarnate in the world, when he says, this is my blood, I think he says it with his arms open wide because he's fully incarnate in the world. He's saying, this is all my blood. This cup is my blood, but this is my blood. I'll just let you think about that. And I believe by doing that, he's giving all bloodshed an eternal significance. Mm -hmm. An eternal significance. That's why we must never, ever, ever rejoice when somebody's killed, even if we think they're a bad guy. This week's episode is brought to you by the new Impact Nations website. If you haven't seen it yet, do yourself a favor and spend a few minutes at impactnations.com. Last month, we released a brand new look and we're really happy with it. It looks great on mobile. It handles Canadian and American currencies seamlessly, making it easier than ever to read about and contribute to all that God is doing through the Impact Nations family around the world. But here's the coolest thing of all. The new website was designed by our ministry partners in Uganda. You've probably heard us talk about the Elevate Computer training program that we sponsor in Kampala. This program rescues young adults from the violent gang life of the slums and provides them with a new future. Youth are trained in uh, photography, in videography, in graphic design and web development. So here's the cool thing. The people who designed our new website are graduates of this program. Better yet, when we were invoiced for the cost of developing the new site, those profits were poured right back into training more youth. Pretty cool, eh? We've actually got a bunch of great skills in business development programs in several places around the world. Why don't you go learn a little bit about how our programs work? There is a great page all about it at impactnations.com skills. And I know when you look at our website, you're going to say to yourself, Self, that is a mighty fine website. If you or someone you know is in need of a new look online, why don't you get our friends in Uganda to design it? They're doing an amazing job, they've got competitive rates, and their profits are used to rescue more lives. What more could you want? You can see more of their work at era92.com. That's E-R-A and then the digits 92.com. Era92.com. We'll include a link in the show notes as well. And now, back to the podcast. So we've talked about bread, we've talked about the wine. Let's talk about the issue of unity in the Eucharist. When we partake in the Eucharist, we are joining with brothers and sisters from around the world. That's why I invited whoever is watching in a few minutes when we 
uh, take the bread and the wine, I'm inviting everyone. Get some bread, get a cup, join us. So whenever we, whenever we partake in the Eucharist, we are joining with brothers and sisters from around the world. It's why I talked to you guys uh, last week after the teaching session that one of the great values of the Nicene Creed is not only are we speaking the most foundational words of the church, going back to 325, but whenever we declare the Nicene Creed, just like this, we are joining with brothers and sisters all over the world. There's great power in that unity. So <clears throat> I believe that through this unity, this is another way that the Eucharist integrates us into the body of Christ. John Chrysostom. Have any of you read any of John Chrysostom? Remarkable church father. He said this, Let us learn the wonder of this sacrament. We become a single body according to the scriptures, members of his flesh and bones of his bones. This is what brought about uh, what is brought about by the food that he gives us. He blends himself with us so that we may all become one single entity. Many of the church fathers use the image of a loaf of bread as the church. It's one loaf. Another church father, Cyprian. You're getting a lot of church history tonight. Cyprian said this, when the Lord calls his body bread, made from the collection of a large number of grains, he is pointing to the unity of our people. And when he calls his blood wine, which is pressed together from a large number of clusters of grapes to form a single liquid, he signifies that our flock is made up of a multitude gathered into unity. So that is another important thing, part of the mystery of the body of Christ in the Eucharist. So therefore, the very elements of the Eucharist reflect the one another of the gospel, the unity of his body. The early church saw its unity to be like the unity of bread and wine. And the interesting thing about these two analogies, bread, grain, to turn it into bread, to turn grapes into wine, what do they have in common? They must be crushed. They must be crushed. The Eucharist helps us remember Jesus' most common saying. Uh, Matthew 16, 25 is off the top of my head one example, but whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. John 12, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground. So, in the Eucharist, because it's a supernatural transaction, because it's the, it's the real presence of the second person of the triune God, in the Eucharist we receive anew both pardon or forgiveness and peace. Let the peace of Christ... <coughs> Dwell in your midst. I love that verse, Colossians 3.15. Pardon and peace. Therefore, pardon and peace become the unifying marks among a truly Eucharistic people. I believe this. As we go deep, as we value, as we discover the mystery of the Eucharist, 
and all that is involved in it, something starts to happen and together we become a people of pardon and peace. You know, I, I just knew this was going to go on and on, so I, I had to limit this. I didn't even go here, but let me just say this much. Church fathers and mothers again and again point out that the Eucharist is about us as the body of Christ more than about just me and him. That the mystery comes, his presence comes, but it comes to us. Of course it comes to me, but it comes to us. It's a loaf of bread, it's not a stalk of wheat. Which is counterintuitive to 21st century evangelicalism, isn't it? Remember from last week, I told you this. Creation has a common identity that is driving the cosmos forward. And I gave you a quote from David Hart. The cosmos will have been truly created only when it reaches its consummation in the union of all things in Christ. That's why I said to you, he did not just create you, he is creating you. And he will not stop creating you until everything is summed up in Christ, as Paul said to the Ephesians. He will not stop creating the cosmos until it's all reconciled to him, summed up in him. Creation, even my creation, isn't an event that was static. I am being created. And the common identity is that we're moving forward into the summing up of all things in Christ. This is what Paul called in Ephesians 1.9, the mystery of his purpose. We talked about that last week, so I'm not going to go over that. But I'll give you the quote. God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. We can talk about that for a long time tonight, about the all things. I heard some discussion going on at supper about the all things, about the purposes of Christ, the work of Christ, the grace of Christ. Does it end with Christian believers? You'll have to find out who was talking to see where they went on that. <laughs> the fourth thing I want to say that there's so many aspects to the Eucharist, but, but this fourth one, the Eucharist points to what's called the parousia, which just means Christ's return. It points forward to Christ's return. The summing up of all things in Christ. You guys, most of you know the term Maranatha. Some of us are old enough to remember that was a, a music label in the 70s. Mm -hmm. But Maranatha is in the book of Revelation, and it means Lord come. Uh, but did you know that Maranatha in the early church was specifically a Eucharistic prayer. It was said specifically at the time and for the purpose of celebrating this great mystery of the Eucharist. Isn't that interesting? That's a freebie. So, <coughs> we have this whole episode in the upper room the Last Supper. 
I read to you from Luke's account. But just following that, Jesus, just after he gave them the bread and the wine, this is my body, this is my blood, he said this, verse 29 and 30, and just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I now grant you the right to eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. So, more than a symbol, more than a reminder, though of course we're reminded, this is a taste of our future. This is a prophetic act. It pulls the future into the present. It pulls heaven into now. Remember, near the end of the Bible, Revelation 19.9 talks about this great feast. Blessed are those who were invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he added, these are true words that come from God. So the wedding feast is this incredible picture of the culmination of all things being summed up in Christ. Isn't it interesting? Remember when we were, some of you were with me when we were doing John's Gospel for a long time. Isn't it interesting? When they said, where are you going? Where are you staying? He says, come and see, right? And that whole staying, uh, minnow 63 times all the way through that gospel. So come and see. So where does he take them? Does he take them to church? He takes them to a wedding feast. It was such a prophetic act. It was also, I believe, a freeing act. So here's what I want to say in terms of this great pointing ahead to, to the second coming to this great feast. Bread sustains us. I, I am a bread lover. Uh, I love bread too much. I, I've got about 10 pounds to prove it, I think, but I love bread. But it, it, it sustains me. And wine, according to Psalm 104.15, gladdens the heart. Right? It does. It gladdens the heart. It's a good thing. The Eucharist is a mystery, but it's not a somber one. It celebrates the end of all things, which is the union of all things in Christ. We're on a home stretch. Everybody still awake? <laughs> I want to talk about the Eucharist as a celebration of grace. Pope Francis, one of my heroes, said this, the bread and wine are not prizes or rewards for good behavior. Rather, they are food for the human journey and medicine for the sick. Isn't that wonderful? We receive the bread and the wine because we are wounded. You know, some of the translations, this is my body which is given for you, but some of the translations say, this is my body which is broken for you. I think the Eucharist reminds us of God's canonic, self-emptying love. We've talked a lot about that. That's expressed on the cross. It's expressed in, in the divine dance of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's self-emptying, self-emptying. The Eucharist reminds me of God's self-emptying love. And it invites me into brokenness. I think maybe sometimes we focus too much on victory when the reality is that a lot of God's work that he does, I told you last week, happens through suffering. So let's finish this. The Eucharist is both uh, an intimate encounter and a divine encounter. Uh, when we receive it as Christ offers it, uh, it connects us heart to heart. 
In the Eucharist, we move beyond talking about the mystery of Christ. And with all my heart, I believe, we enter into the mystery of Christ. <laughs> you know, in John 6, where it says, and I taught you this last year, but where he says, the one who eats my flesh, there's an easy word for eat that could have been used, but he didn't use it. He said, the one who chews on my flesh. Isn't that interesting? This comes back to the whole issue of absorption, the whole issue of you're in me. The indivisibility of the incarnation in me and all around me. So we literally chew on this ministry and in this way we fully participate in the incarnational mystery of Christ. I believe that the real presence of Christ is in the bread and the wine. And as I told you earlier, this has been a journey for me. And uh, I've gone from one place and journeyed to another place. And I think that if we pull back from this real presence, either consciously or even unconsciously, and say, no, it's symbolic, it's on remembrance, I think, at least for me, this would weaken my walk with God. And it's because the bread and the wine are his real presence in me. It's not anymore enough for me to think about him. I need to live in him and with him. So I want to say that again. If we pull back, or at least if I pull back from my deep conviction that the bread and the wine are the real presence of Christ, I think it weakens my walk with God because the bread and the wine are his real presence. Christ is incarnate in me. I don't know that as from a book I read or a principle. I am growing in knowing that. Again this morning, in just a few seconds, I just... I wouldn't trade those few seconds for anything today. He is in me. And this incarnational awareness, this, this, the incarnational Eucharist just shouts that out to me. And I think that if I move away from this real presence, if I, if I loosen my hold on this truth, then I think that just as I sacrifice his real presence in the bread and the wine, all oh, those are just symbols, ultimately I'm going to sacrifice his presence in me. That's how important this is to me. We must continually return to the Eucharist. This is where we are re-grounded in our true identity in Christ. You're in me and I'm in you, and you're in me and I'm in you. That's what he said. This is our truest being. This is the truth on which we live and move and have our being. So I'll finish with this, what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 10, 16. When we bless the cup at the Lord's table, 
aren't we sharing in the blood of Christ? And when we break the bread, aren't we sharing in the body of Christ? And though we are many, we all eat from one loaf of bread, showing that we are one body. And a part of me wishes I could go on much longer, but hopefully there's some, if you'll pardon the pun, food for thought <laughs> tonight. I hope some of this will affect even the way you approach this. Um, Jonathan, would you bring out the bread and the, and the, the wine, please? There's 20 of us here tonight, so I'm, we're going to have two cups. I, um, I want to do something that I kind of went back and forth on whether I would do, because I didn't want to sound religious or anything. But a number of years ago, I, uh, I was preaching at a church, and as often happens, of course, it was, uh, it was a Sunday that they were sharing the Eucharist. And uh, someone who has become a dear friend of mine, actually, in Connecticut, uh, he led the communion in a way that I, I just loved it. And so I'm going to draw just a little bit. His communion order of service was many minutes, but, but I'm going to just draw on a few things tonight as, uh, as, we, as we share that. Um, So let me do something I've never done before. So let's pray. Let us not presume to come to this your table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. You are the Lord whose mercy is unfailing. Grant us therefore, gracious Lord, so to partake of the sacrament of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, that we may be filled with the fullness of his life and may grow into his likeness and may evermore dwell in him and he in us. O Lamb of God, that takes away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us. O Lamb of God, that takes away the sins of the world, grant us thy peace. Amen. So Lord, we, we thank you for your presence and we pray for your blessing upon this. As Jesus took the bread and said, this is my body broken for you. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you, Preserve your soul and body into everlasting life. Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your heart by faith and wish thanks, wish with thanksgiving, knowing that his real presence is among us. Amen. The body of Christ. Um, let me pray, and then we'll pass the cup.
blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you, preserve your soul and body into everlasting life. Drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for you and feed on him in your heart with faith and with thanksgiving, knowing that his real presence is among us. Amen. Pass the cup. And I encourage you at home to join us in this. Amen. Well, that concludes another episode of the Impact Nations podcast. If this teaching has prompted any questions, I'd encourage you to email them to podcast at impactnations.com, and we'll be sure to discuss them in a future episode. Also, if you need a new website or just want to see some of the really cool work that our partners are doing, go to era92.com, where you'll be rescuing lives and building your brand at the same time. Thanks, and have a great week.